Good morning, church. Good morning. morning. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. The title of my message this morning is God the Son Incarnate. Let me first say happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. Thank you for joining us, whether this is your home church or whether you're visiting this morning. Pray that you feel the Lord's pleasure. You do a wonderful work, moms. We continue our study this morning of the foundational teachings of Scripture that we affirm in our statement of faith, and this morning we will be focusing on the doctrine of Christ, or the study of Christ, or another word for that is Christology, His person and His saving work, and and what an important doctrine this is. One of the most important questions that you or, or I can ever answer is, who do we say that Jesus the Christ is? We see this throughout the New Testament, the question of the identity of Jesus Christ. It's asked multiple times. So in Mark 2, for example, after Jesus declares the sins of a paralytic man forgiven, the Pharisees ask, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In Luke 8, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and he calms the storm. And right after that, the disciples in awe ask, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Or in Matthew 13, Jesus goes back and visits his hometown of Nazareth and he teaches and the people ask, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Didn't we see him grow up and it says they took offense at him. Or in John 18, Jesus standing before Pilate, he tells Pilate he came to bear witness to the truth. That's why he came into the world. And Pilate looks at him and has the audacity to say, what is truth? Lastly, Matthew 16, on one occasion, Jesus asked his disciples, he he first said, who do people say that I am? And then he turned to them and said, who do you say that I am? That's the question he asks of everybody in each one of us today. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? For many in our world, the answer is that, well, Jesus, he existed, but he was a prophet, or he was a teacher, or he was a failed revolutionary, or he was a deranged homeless man. Even in the church, there's much confusion on who Jesus was. And last year, in 2022, Ligonier Ministries put out a survey of adult evangelicals. They do this every two years, and they call it the state of theology. They ask many questions. They ask questions and, and try to see whether, where, where evangelicals land on key beliefs of the faith. And surprising some of the results. And here, just to highlight a few, they found that 43% of Christians, evangelicals, those who believe in Jesus Christ and believe the Bible is true, they believe in this statement, that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That's almost half of evangelicals would believe that that statement is true. They also found that over half, 56% of evangelicals agree with this statement, that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And one more, 73% agree with this statement, that Jesus is the first and greatest created being 
by God. That Jesus was the first created being by God. That Jesus is not eternal. That's almost two-thirds of evangelicals who would agree to that statement. And this demonstrates what Dr. Stephen Wellam calls, as he comments on our culture, Christological confusion. Confusion about who Christ is, even within the church. He says that's what we have in this age of religious pluralism. This, that, that's a phrase that simply means this, our world believes that there are many different paths to get to God, and they're confused about who Christ is. And so listen, we here as a church, we must confront this question of Jesus' identity. Who do we say that he is? We fall into this trap of affirming lies about what Jesus said he was. As we think about this question, we, we, we are not left, praise the Lord, we, we have not been left without a witness. We have the scriptures, God re- revealed word to us to think about this. Jesus says in his word that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but through me. So he makes a claim on us and he makes a claim on everyone who has ever lived that they must take or leave. So church, this must be our confession This must be the confession that we hold to, that Jesus is God, that he is Lord of all, and that the only way to everlasting fellowship with God is through Jesus Christ, and no other way. And when we get our confession right, our belief right, our doctrine right over Christ, and we submit to Christ's claim as Lord over all, over us, the way that we live changes. Because if we say with our mouth that Jesus is Lord over all, that he is God, then our lives should look different. We should submit to that claim that he has on our lives. And this is what we see in our text, that the doctrine, who Jesus is, leads to transformed and changed lives. So let's turn our eyes now to Scripture, Philippians 2. I'm going to be reading from verses 5 to 11 from God's holy and authoritative word to us. Verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You come to a text like this, whether you are reading it and submitting to it, seeking to believe it, or whether you're committing to preach it and you realize the inadequacy standing at this truth, staring it in the face of who Jesus is, your inadequacy to even proclaim it. So I want to go, before we dive into this, go to the Lord and ask for his help this morning. So Lord, please bless now the preaching of your word and the believing of your word. You've revealed this glorious truth of Jesus Christ to us in your scriptures. And God, we need your help to see it anew. Open up our eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Open up my mouth, fill it to be able to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We could go to many passages when we think about this, the doctrine of Christ. We could go to many passages. Uh, this passage shows us that keeping the glorious picture of Jesus Christ central in our thinking provides clear motivation for our lives. And it's just a glorious passage that shows first Jesus in his majestic splendor in heaven who descends down in humility to earth only to be exalted and go back to the majestic splendor as Lord over all. A big arrow. I hope you're seeing that, that the way up is ultimately the way down. And we see in this scripture that that was how Jesus came and we are to map our same lives in the same way. That the way up ultimately is through the way down and through serving we see in our text both the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. And those will be our two points this morning to guide us. First, the humiliation, humiliation of Christ, verses 6 to 8. Uh, our passage, we're jumping into Philippians here, right? Our passage comes in chapter 2. We started in verse 5. Paul just listed out in the first four verses of chapter 2 a call to spiritual unity. That's his desire for the Philippian church, to be unified, to have the same mind. That's what he says in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Verse 3, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then in verse 5, he says, have this mind, this mind that I'm calling you to, to lay down your life to, in humility, to be unified as a church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul gives these commands, and then as a good preacher, he roots them in an illustration. What better illustration than Jesus Christ? He says, go and be in unity, in humility as a church. And how are you going to do that? By looking to Jesus Christ as a supreme example of selfless humility. So have the doctrine inform how you live. Have the same mind that Jesus Christ had. Have the same mindset that Jesus had. And the rest of the passage explains what Jesus' mindset is. And isn't this just incredible that we have the eternal, supreme creator of the universe and we can go, what, are, what is he thinking? What, what, is, what does he believe? What, what's he like? And we have the scriptures. And we have this passage which reveals to us what God is like for us that we might map our lives and conform our lives to it. So what a glorious passage. Paul launches in verse 6 through 11. He launches into what scholars call the Christ hymn. Maybe it looks different in your Bible. Potentially it's set off. Uh, if you look into the Greek, uh, the structure and the style of verses 6 to 11 are different. And many scholars believe it, it was a hymn or an early creed that the early church would have used to proclaim who Christ was, to sing about it, to state their faith. Um, perhaps written by Paul and then included in this Philippian letter, perhaps written earlier and then included by Paul in this letter, but the Christ hymn, and it's divided into two parts. Uh, so first we see in verses 6 to 8, the humiliation of Christ, and then a turn when it's with the word therefore in verse 9 to the exaltation of Christ, a, a glorious hymn. And what we see is incredible. Look at, look at verse 6 at the beginning of this hymn. Christ is described as being in the form of God. Verse 6 says, though he was in the form of God. And this statement takes us all the way back 
before Jesus was a baby, before he was born as a man to the pre-existent Jesus Christ, the eternal Jesus Christ, says he was in the form of God. And that word form in the Greek gets at something that you appear to be on the outside because it's who you are on the inside as well, both outside and inside. So it's a little bit unlike maybe how we would use the word form. We might use the word form like, like Plato, right? Like you form something, you create something. Like if, if my kids, my boys, they create something out of Play-Doh and they make a little cookie and they say, Daddy, it's a cookie. And I look at it and I'm like, that's not a cookie because if I bite into it, it's not going to taste like a cookie, but it looks like a cookie on the outside, right? But on the inside, what is it? It's Play-Doh. And it's not going to taste good if I put that in my mouth. That's my, how, we, how we use the word form. It, originally, th- this word form means something that it's not only just something on the outside, but it's who that person is on the inside. And so what Paul is saying here when he says he was in the form of God is that Jesus was God. Jesus is God. The NIV is helpful here. It says, being in very nature God. At his very nature, at the core of who he was, Jesus is God. So before Paul talks we got to get this. Before Paul even talks about how Jesus humbly came down, we got to get what was happening, as much as we can stretch our minds to imagine what was happening before he became a baby, that he existed eternally in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit as God, co-equal with them. We got to get Jesus' eternal deity, his divinity, because Jesus is truly God and fully divine, and he's equal with the Father and Spirit. He's never less than, he's, he's never, never been created. Let's get that. I, I hope we're not in the 73% who would affirm that, that Jesus was created. Jesus was never created. Jesus has existed eternally. He's begotten from all ages from the Father, but he has existed eternally, having the same nature and attributes and authority and power and glory as the Father and Spirit. He's if we just look at scriptures, and when it speaks of who Jesus is, it says he's the image of God, Colossians 1, 15. The whole fullness, think about this, the whole fullness of de- deity dwells within him, Colossians 2. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1. John 1, John 1, 1 says that he existed in the beginning, and he was God, And then later in John 17, when Jesus is praying, he says, he says he shared glory with the Father before the world existed. Acts 3, he's called the righteous one or the holy one. And we see him in the New Testament worshiped by the disciples and by the church and in Hebrews by the angels. And when he comes, he brings God's kingdom and he casts out demons and he forgives sin. He has the authority to do that the authority to cast out, and he's called our great God and our great Savior in Titus 2.13 and 1 Peter 1.1. In short, Jesus is fully God. And that, that just sets up the beauty of a passage like this. Jesus, eternally, fully God. And look where Paul goes. Though he was in the form of God, he says in verse 6, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. A difficult phrase, thinking that through. Grasp means something that is seized or desired and then exploited, a way to take advantage of something. So we we can translate it this way, verse 6, that precisely because he was God, he is God, 
Jesus didn't look at the fact that he was God and his divinity and use it for his own advantage. He didn't say, I'm God, and I'm going to exploit the fact that I'm God, and I'm going to look down on everybody that I created. But just the opposite gets at the very heart of who Jesus Christ is. He's God in heaven, in glory, in splendor, all sufficient, not needing anything, and yet his attitude wasn't to grasp. To say, I'm God. I'm going to take advantage of my position. But his attitude was to give. He had every reason to put his rights first. To leave us in our sin and rebellion, and he didn't. What did he do? He came to give, not to get. Verse 7 says he emptied himself. He, by, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. What, is, what does that mean? He, he emptied himself. What does that mean? That, that he somehow he came down to earth and he left his divine powers up above. He stopped being God for a little bit for 33 years so he could walk around as a man. He left all, like a locker room, like I'm going to put my divinity and the fact that I'm God in the locker room for a little bit. And I'm going to be a man for a little while. Some would believe that, that he emptied himself, that he emptied himself of all but love and just let me tell you, you, you look at these, this, you read about this a little bit, you look at some of these words, and there are, about a thou, there are thousands of papers written on individual words in a passage like this and controversy over the past 2,000 years about what this actually means. But he emptied himself, and let's just keep reading. You want to know what that means? What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? What's our passage say? It says he emptied himself by taking the form of, Outside, inside, the form of a servant, of a slave, literally a slave laying aside his lights and being born in the likeness of men. That's how he emptied himself. So we can say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. It's not like he said, all right, I'm going to go 50% God now and I'm going to go 50% man so that the math somehow works out in our minds. No, he, he created this way in which we could say 100% God, 100% man, you all figure that one out. You all do the math on that one and see if you can figure that one out. It's the reality. You remember, um, you remember Superman, right? Superman is this kind of this divine being he has all these powers from another planet, and he comes to Earth, and then suddenly he walks around as Clark Kent, and he puts on glasses, and he works as a news reporter, but inside he's like this divine being, but he's walking around looking like a human, right? But he's not a human. He's an alien the whole time. He's a, Superman's an alien. In case you've, if you never, Superman is an alien walking around trying to act like, a, look like a human, disguise himself, but he's still an alien. Nothing changed about him outside of his clothes and what he puts on. And what I'm getting at is that Jesus is so much more than, than something like that. He, he's unlike us. He's God. And yet somehow in the incarnation, he becomes fully man. Not like he just dresses up and looks like a man. He's man. He's a human, fully, while still remaining God at the same time. And it's Incredible. He became a human down to our very nature. As our statement of faith was said, as we read before, he's co-equal with the Father in spirit, and yet he took on himself a fully human nature with all its attributes 
and frailties yet without sin. So think about it. For those, those of you in this room, I've already blown your mind with 100%, 100%, all, the, all you math lovers out there. You're like, that just doesn't work. Here's another one. We're not talking about subtraction here. Like Jesus somehow left his divinity behind. We're talking about addition. He's fully God, and yet he took on fully man as well. I'm going to use the word simple. It's simple addition. It's the least simple thing you can even imagine. But somehow in the incarnation, he became something he was not previously while remaining what he was before. And it's just astounding. Think about what he enjoyed in heaven for all eternity. Donald MacLeod, a theologian, helps us. He says, he says this. He says, Jesus possessed all the majesty of the deity. He performed all its functions and enjoyed all its prerogatives. He was adored by his Father. He was worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. He existed in unclouded serenity. And his supremacy, look at this, his supremacy was total, his satisfaction complete, his blessedness perfect, such a condition was not something he had secured by his own effort. It was the way things were and had always been, and there was no reason why they should change. But change they did, and they changed because Christ did not insist on his rights. Verse 8, verse eight says he humbled himself. And so Jesus takes on tiredness and hunger and pain. The Holy One sits and dines with sinners. The Holy One stands and looks at Satan in the flesh, being tempted like no one ever has been. He's rejected by his hometown. He's rejected and dismissed and misunderstood by the very ones he created. But what do we see? Again and again and again, He's the humble servant. And again and again and again, he gives and he gives and he gives. We can think of many examples. Matthew 14. Think about this story. Jesus has been teaching. He's been healing all day long. He hears that John the Baptist, his cousin, has just been executed. Right? And so he goes, like many would do in, in their grief, he wants to take a minute. He says he goes in a boat and he wants to go to a desolate place. He wants to be all by himself. He wants to grieve. He wants to remember. He needs a break. He's tired. And so he gets in the boat and the, the crowds, the people who have been listening to him teach, they see him. They see what he's doing, they see where he's going. It says they run, they run around to the other side, and they beat him. They get there first to a desolate place. They don't even think about food. They just pack up and run out there. One kid brings, you know, a couple fish and some loaves, and he brings it with them. But they all head out to this desolate place, and Jesus gets out of the boat, ready for a desolate place, ready for just peace, quiet. And he gets out, and what, what's he see? He sees a crowd who want to be healed and who want to be taught again. And, and the passage says he looks on them and he looked on them with compassion. He says like he looked on them like they were sheep without a shepherd. And so he teaches them 
And these are the 5,000 that he then feeds that same day. He's, he's still thinking about John the Baptist. He's still tired, and he lays down his life, and he serves. Who, this is God. He could have said, hey, you know, take a break. I'm, I need to go talk to my father. I just need a minute. And he says, no, I'm, a, I'm here to serve. I'm here to lay down my life. And he looked on the people with compassion. That's how he looks on you. He looks on you as your shepherd with compassion. When you've got needs and you want to keep coming to him and praying to him, he continues to hear you with compassion and respond to you with compassion. Remember John 13. The, the disciples are gathered one last time together before Jesus will go to the cross and it says this, that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus knew who he was. He knew what was going down. He knew what was about to happen. It says he laid aside his outer garments. He tied a towel around his, wa- his waist. He knelt down to serve these disciples who were just continued to, to be fools and not understand, who had dirty, grimy feet. And he washes, this is God of the universe, kneeling down and washing the feet of his created ones. And then he says, as he's serving in humility, and he looks at them and says, go and do likewise. Remember verse 5 in a passage. Have this mind among yourselves. This is the supreme example of humility, and it comes from God himself. And he says, follow me. And our text says that Jesus humbled himself all the way to death, even death on a cross. Listen, we're the ones who sinned. That that was man's debt to pay. Right? That that was something that we had to pay, and we couldn't, because sinners can't pay an infinite debt against an eternal God. And so we stood under God's wrath, deserving punishment, and our only hope was if somebody took our place as our perfect substitute, and that's what Jesus did. God the Father lovingly sent His Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus voluntarily stepped down from the place of being clothed in divine splendor and glory, and He set aside those clothes and those garments, and He clothed Himself with humanity and with weakness and with frailty. And he stooped down and entered our broken, dirty, corrupt world so that he could stand in our place, perfectly live the life that we could not live. Adam couldn't do it. We can't do it. We need somebody to stand in our place, perfectly obey. He did that. And then offer up that sinless, perfect life as a sacrifice for us. This is the eternal God stooping down for us to save us. And this, this is the ultimate humiliation of Jesus Christ. Pastor John Stott says this is unfathomable mercy. For an order, he says, for in order to save us in such a way as to satisfy himself, God through Christ substituted himself, himself for us Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. Divine self-sacrifice. You, you, that phrase doesn't even make sense. Divine self-sacrifice. 
Jesus alone could both die as our substitute and absorb the incredible debt of an eternal God. Who could dream of a divine self-sacrifice? That what other God would say, yeah, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to give myself to those. You look at all these other gods, all these other pagan gods, and they're like, give, give, give me something. I'm the God, right? Give me something. Serve me. And our God is one who says, I, I, I'm going to give my life to you and for you. Just meditating on this week, I, I just continue to be amazed. We're getting into the deep depths of God's love for us and for you. And it's just, you, you, if you can picture it and illustrate it, it's, it's like a little boy who falls in a well. He breaks his leg and he's stuck at the bottom of the well. He's not getting out. Can't climb back up that well. He's got no hope. His big brother looks down and he doesn't cross his arms and say, you knew, you knew the rules. You knew you're not supposed to play around here. You're not supposed to do this. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to get my tennis shoes dirty for you. I, I, I got other things to do. That's below me. I, I ain't doing that. Here we see Jesus as our big brother saying, yeah, I, I'm going to do, do that. I'm going to go get myself dirty. I'm going to give myself to save you. I'm going to climb down that well and do what you cannot do. And I'm going to give myself to you. You get that? that? That this is our God who did this for us. Peter O'Brien commentates and he says, he says it this way, Christ voluntarily chose the path of obedient humiliation that led to his incarnation and death. Divine equality means sacrificial self-giving. So accordingly, he says the hymn, this Christ hymn reveals not only what Jesus is truly like, but also what it means to be God. Oh my, what it means to be God. You know what that means? That Jesus' humility and stooping down isn't just something he did for 33 years and then he went back up and said, now he's proudfully ruling over everything right now. This is the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. This is who God is, that he's not a grasping God, but he's a giving God. Our God is a giving God. So listen, did you come in this morning and you just feel, you feel empty, feel worn out, you feel tired, you feel poured out. And if you're honest, you're just tired of serving and giving and doing things for others and laying down your life for others. What's our motivation? What's our hope? Christ gave himself for you. Christ gave himself for you. Second Corinthians 8, 9, he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. And then he sent the Spirit to help us. When we feel weak, he sent the Spirit to help us and his word for your encouragement and guidance and his presence for fellowship and for strength and for comfort. And he's your high priest. He's a human, which means he can be a high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses as Bert read this morning. He, can simp- he understands what it's like to be a human. He understands what you're going through right now. And he sympathizes with you. And he says, come and follow me. And he prays for you. And he promises to strengthen you for your days as you fellowship with him. So church, look to the cross and look to Christ.
It's a privilege to serve Jesus Christ because he served us. Remember the call of our passage to have the same mind of Christ. So this is a relational passage. How are we doing with relationships, with the people that we live with? Think about your spouse or your family or your siblings or the people in this church or your friends or your neighbors, the boss who who treats you unfairly, the neighbor who gets up at 7 a.m. and mows his lawn or playing music at midnight or always wants to talk to you and you're just like, I just need a minute to myself and he just wants the neighbor who just annoys you, who you are called to live next to for who knows how long. Think about these relationships. What do you value in those relationships? Is it, is it significance? Is it your identity? Is it your reputation? Or is it theirs? Think about somebody, maybe, maybe there's some, some here this morning who are in conflict with somebody, who are estranged from somebody. Right? What's your attitude in that relationship? Is your aim to preserve your rights and your privileges your opinion, your status, to convince them that, that they're wrong and you're right, to wait for them to get it together before you, you go and serve them or help them? Or is it to serve them and to give of yourself in love for them, to stoop down for them? Are you conforming your mind to the mindset of Jesus Christ? And is He at the center of that relationship? And if not... How is he calling you freshly anew to self-sacrifice and to give? Listen, church, the only one who ever truly had a right to stand back and to not give and just say, I I, I can get, he stooped down to serve, to serve us. And that's, as we look to that, that, that's what's going to produce How can I be humble? How can I serve people? How can I continue to do that? By looking to Christ. That's gospel-motivated humility and service as we keep our eyes there. Like, man, this is so tired. I served him last week. I got to do this again. I got to make breakfast again. I got to wash these clothes again. Mow the lawn again. Take this trash out again. I did this yesterday. I got to do it again. Ah, man. Jesus lived his whole life serving others. And that's, that's God we're talking about. So it's a privilege to lay down my life for others. Listen, you reflect Christ and you please God when you voluntarily choose the path of obedient, humble, sacrificial self-giving. When you, when you lay down your life to do something and to serve when it's not convenient or pleasant. All you mothers in here this morning who lay down your life for your kids and for your husband, and you serve and you serve and you serve and you give and you give. And that's your role, right? To give and to give and to give. You gave life and now you continue to give and to give and to give and to give. Even at times when, when they don't, no, no appreciation is verbalized. Hopefully today, right? Right, y'all? Hopefully today appreciation is verbalized. But there are moments when you give there's no appreciation verbalizes. The Lord sees it. And it pleases him. Or for those of us in this church who are fostering and we are giving and giving, those of you who are fostering, the Lord sees it and it pleases him. 
For those in this church who serve, some downstairs right now, some in the back, who serve faithfully week in and week out, and then go home and you got to serve some more and lay down your life in humility, the Lord sees it and it pleases Him and it glorifies God. That's the gospel at work in your life when you willingly serve someone else. And one day you will be exalted. That's the way down, right? One day you will be exalted and your joy will be full in heaven. It's what the pattern we see in Jesus' life, the humiliation and then the exaltation. So let's move briefly to consider our second point, the exaltation of Christ, verses 9 to 11. Jesus humbled himself and then God the subject changes, right? Now it's God acting, and God's response is to exalt Jesus. He raises him up. So listen, we want to center ourselves on the cross, right? But don't forget what happened after the cross, right? The proof of the cross is seen in what happens after the cross. So Jesus is exalted when he's, rises, when he's raised from the grave, and he conquers sin and death and the grave. And then he's exalted when he's, uh, he ascends up. And somehow he's Lord over time and space and dimensions as he transfers from earth to heaven. And then he's exalted when he gets to heaven and he sits on his throne where he sits now ruling over the earth, receiving all authority and receiving the name above every, every name. You see, when God saw Jesus' complete submission in his life all the way to the cross, God looked at that. God was satisfied by that. He raised him up. He seated him on his throne. And to demonstrate all this, that's what he did. And he wanted to say, this is, this is what I am satisfied with. Here's a big stamp of approval on all, everything that Jesus did. Everything's fully paid. And he's Lord over all now. That's what we see in verse 9. It says that, therefore, therefore, because of all the things that Jesus just said, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So after Jesus' humiliation, he's raised, he's seated on his throne, he receives this name. What, what, what name are we talking about here? The name, of, the name Lord, the name Yahweh, the name of highest honor. Listen to what Isaiah says. This all harkens back to Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 8 says, this is the Lord speaking. He says, I am the Lord. I am literally Yahweh. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Or later in Isaiah 45, verse 21, he says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. And God gives Jesus this name to which every knee will bow. And it means that Jesus, he's Lord, and he's given universal lordship through his life and death and resurrection, all glory, all power, all authority. He's Lord and every knee will bow to him. He had it because he's God and now he's given it again as a gift, all authority and all power as king over this universe. And it means two things, that he's presently king. You don't know, you don't know where Jesus is. He's on his throne right now, ruling over this world. And it means one day it will be visible to all. One day we're going to see it. And not only us in this room, but everybody will see it and bow down to it. That's what verse 10 says. 
says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Put it in the bank. It's going to happen. I mean, just look at, the, look at the scope and the utter sovereignty of his rule. The Lord will not be denied or overthrown. This is his reign. There's going to be a day when all must bow to his lordship. You, you know, when you see a king or queen in this life, drive by or walking by, you go to the palace, it's up to you whether you want to bow or not, right? You can make a choice. You might suffer a little bit of consequence depending on if you're in their palace or not. You, you probably should bow in that case, but it's up to you, right? There's going to be a day, though, when everyone will bow to the king of kings. Some are going to do it. We're going to do it gladly and joyfully and cheerfully because that's our king. That's our Lord. And others will do it. They're going to do it. They're going to bow that knee, but inside they're still rebelling. I, I'm doing this because I have to. I, I, uh, there's no other way. But I don't, he's not my Lord. I don't believe that. I'm going to bow my knee, but I'm still rebelling against him. But don't you love the extent of this passage? We're talking about cosmic rule. We're talking about the angels and believers above the earth in heaven. We're talking about on the earth, the nations and the people on the earth. We're talking about under the earth. So Satan and demons, they're all going to bow as well to the king of kings. And they will all confess that Jesus is Lord. Some are going to bow because they can't resist it. And others, we're going to bow because we believe it. Because we lived it. Because we proclaimed it in our lives this is one of the original creeds of the early church. Jesus is Lord. And that's our creed and that's our confession because it's true. And it will be true. King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. And hallelujah. Hallelujah. He shall reign forevermore. That is true, and it will be true. And this is our confession, church. And this is our hope. So, so listen. If you're here this morning, and that's not your confession, that Jesus is not your Lord, look at our text. What we just read, this is the end of all things. This is where we're going. There are no other gods. There's no other Savior. There's no other salvation. There's no other religion, no other worldview by which we can be saved except in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the claim Jesus puts on the life of every person who has ever lived. And see, we can accept it. We can accept that and experience eternal joy in the presence of the King, in the presence of God. We can accept that and experience that. Or we can continue to rebel against the King. You can continue to rebel against the King and suffer the consequence of doing that. Receiving the right, just punishment wherever the king wants to send you. And he, and he says, the destination of those who rebel against the king is eternity in hell. That's where those are going who do not fully submit to themselves 
to Jesus in humility and call him Lord and Savior. My friends, listen to the promise of God's word. Romans 10, 9. This is a promise for you today, for this, this morning, right now, before you leave. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth, mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Jesus is a king who welcomes you with gates wide open for those who would humbly come before him and submit their lives to him. So repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning as a believer, hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord that Jesus calls you his friend. The king calls you his friend. So the call for us is to humble ourselves that we might be exalted. You will be exalted. Philippians 3, later in Philippians, here's what it says. Here's our hope. Verse 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even even now to subject all things to himself. That same power that is ruling over this world will bring you to glory. So right now, acknowledge his lordship. Persevere, saints. Acknowledge it. Persevere and walk in humility as you wait for the king to return, as you wait for the conqueror to return. And so listen, when we see the nations raging, we're tempted to look around because that day hasn't come yet. We're tempted to see the nations raging on Twitter or on Facebook or on Fox News or on CNN or pick, fill in the blank, wherever you see the nations raging right now and you just feel, you feel that, you feel that fear rising up or you want to say something or in your workplace, don't rage back. Declare that Jesus is Lord. The, rage, the nations can rage all they want. We know the end. That's where our hope is. At, Jesus as Lord is antithetical to self-exaltation or pessimism or complaining or fear of the future. God is in control and will triumph over this age. Christ is at the center of all things. So he, God the Son incarnate, Savior and Lord Church, Jesus Christ might be at the, must be at the center of our confession, of our obedience, of our lives, of our devotion, of our surrender, all to the glory of God. And may it be so, church. Let's pray. Lord, we, you've revealed incredible things to us. We, we behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And though we didn't actually get to walk with him and see him, we, we can see who he is in the word you've given to us. And one day we will see him face to face, reigning over this world, this earth, this universe. We long for that day, Lord. So we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. But Lord, we also, we just, we confess we need your help. Here we are talking about humility and walking the path of Jesus. Who can walk the path of Jesus? Who can every minute lay down his life and serve? And as, as you say in your word in Romans, always seeking the good of others, never pleasing himself. Lord, we need your help. We ask for it. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit 
So help us to work out our own salvation even as we know that you are working in us. God at work in us. So Lord, would you work in us. Give us your spirit freshly. Fill us up to walk in your ways, to submit in humility, to serve others. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen.